0: This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do for as little as a buck a month, or to sign up as a member and get commercial-free versions of every episode, plus members-only bonus episodes, sign up at patreon.com slash bestoftheleft, or visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the movement already underway to take back power for progressive ideas in this country, and we're going to look at it from multiple perspectives and hopefully address the concerns from across the spectrum from moderate to the far left. Clips today come from Sunday Civics, The Laura Flanders Show, Ring of Fire Radio, The Dig from Jacobin Magazine, and The Bradcast. And our new Midterm Minutes segment will highlight many of the upcoming elections around the country you should be getting ready for.
1: this in context for you congress is up all of the house is up right so they have to run for re-election 33 senate seats are up wow 36 of the governor's mansions Mm. in the country Mm. up for re-election or election 30 lieutenant governors 30 attorney general seats wow 26 secretary of state um there's going to be ballot questions or ballot measures in about 35 states. And that's just counting because we don't know, you know, if um, other ballot initiatives will make it because they have to get signatures and things like that. And right. we'll see what those are. There are also state Supreme Court elections Oof. in 32 Good states. Goodness. not a, Well, 32 state Supreme Court elections. I wouldn't say 32 states. And then um, a lot of the state legislatures are up so in total, mm. are you ready for this? Oh my god! Six thousand wow. sixty-six state legislature seats. Wow! So wait, in every group you just mentioned are people who are currently employed who are orchestrating things that make us very upset. So their job, this is like their job review. It's like the review for their position. Remember when I said last, the last show of the year and I talked about grading your legislators, right? That's That's a perfect opportunity to do that because in 2018, you may decide that, well, I gave them a grade, their grade was C, their grade was D, do I see like and now you have something to put them up against if they're coming to you for your vote. That's right. For reelection or for election. Yep. Right. You somebody's running for state senate and they used to be in the city council. It's just mm. like, well what did you do in the city council? And like did let's, you serve me that then? voting record. Right. Look yeah. at your voting record. In addition, there are over two thousand school board seats. Oh wow. Up for election this That's year. That's huge. Because for people, and I often will tweet out a hashtag, hashtag, we got to stop. And I always relate it to education. Like We got to stop letting people who hate black children control their education. We got to stop letting people who do not believe that Black Lives Matter control the policing that happens in our streets. If you are serious about addressing concrete issues in your community, every single list and category in the list that you just mentioned is so significant for people to be engaged in as it pertains to getting out, voting, and pressuring them to get on the right side of your issue. That's huge. Yeah. So, you know, but keep in mind, so this is just, these are state seats. These are obviously Congress federal seats. There are also lots of special elections and there may be local um, elections for other positions right. uh, as well happening in 2018. So your first civic action for this episode mm. is to find out what elections are happening in your state this year. That makes a lot of sense because we're going to have to do a lot of work around that information. Rinaldo Pearson, co-mission director, Democracy Spring.
2: Just a few months ago, the Economist uh, Intelligence Reports uh, Democracy Index said that the United States is no longer a full democracy, uh, that we're down now to number 21 on that list because of the erosion of public trust in our institutions. Could that be because of the voter suppression bills? Could that be because of the corrupting influence of big money in politics? Voter suppression alone, uh, as Mother Jones has reported, uh, uh, accounted for. Uh, the scale's being tipped. Yeah. Or if you look at voter erasure, the issue of purging, an estimated 1.1 million folks. This is unprecedented. Purge from the rolls, mostly black and brown.
3: Nathan Rubin, CEO and founder, Millennial Politics. When they purge someone from the voter rolls, when they gerrymander to the point where you could win 60, 70
0: percent of the vote and not have even equal representation, that is not right. That is not
4: American democracy.
5: Catherine Vaughn. CEO and co-founder Flippable. So we have a 100 candidates that we're supporting. Just to name a few, we're focused on Texas and Pennsylvania right now because they've had primaries already, but we'll be rolling out more and you can check them out on our website. Um, There's uh, Maria Collette in Pennsylvania, who was both an attorney and then switched her career to be a nurse and has represented, both represented children in need of legal representation and served patients. And she wants. Uh, universal health care. Um, there is Joanna Katanak in Texas, who's running for the state house, um, who grew up in the foster care system and really is going to know how to represent all of her constituents because of the experiences that she's had. There's Caleb Frostman, who's running in uh, Wisconsin in a special election that Scott Walker tried to cancel. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's running because the courts wouldn't let him do it. Um, and he is running as, as a white man on a platform of Extending civil rights and, um, and, you know, uplifting people of color and ending voter suppression. So there are these amazing candidates that I would definitely suggest checking.
1: Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, District New York 14, congressional candidate, educator, organizer, and democratic socialist.
6: I'm proud to be part of a national coalition of congressional candidates. There are over 55 of us nationwide in 2018 that are rejecting all corporate PAC money. And so, As a result, some of these candidates are utterly transformational. You have Chardo Richardson out in Florida, who's a veteran and an ACLU lawyer. You have Amy Villella, who's a a working mother who actually... You know tragically lost her daughter due to private health insurer loopholes and so she's running for Congress to change that. You've got Cori Bush who was a pastor, a nurse, and she's she was part of the movement for black lives in Ferguson and now she's running to take that congressional seat and make sure we have criminal justice reform on a federal level and that is what we can accomplish when we are tightly tied to social movements, reject corporate money and run like we've never run before. The average age of a House Democrat is at its highest point in American history. Average age is 65 years old as a House Democrat. You have to be 25 years old to run for Congress. And so, you know, I think where where we benefit from is the diversity of age represented in our government, because when it's when it's just older Americans that are represented, how are we going to really prepare for things like automation in our economy, um, tuition-free public college, a student loan crisis and forward forward thinking kind of of, uh, issues as well. Thank you.
0: for our new segment, The Midterms Minute, a look at the candidates and races that you need to know about, shout about, and support to make sure we have a blue tsunami on November 6th primary season is in full swing. Democratic Socialist Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez knocking out Democrat Joe Crowley in New York last month was the primary victory heard around the world. And we are going to need more progressive wins like that to solidify the message that real reform is finally here. And to help me tell you about all the details, I've brought in a ringer, our activism czar Amanda Hoffman, who did all of the research for this segment.
7: Tennessee's Democratic primaries take place August 2nd. In Tennessee's 2nd District, Brand New Congress has endorsed Mark Whitmire, a former veteran and small business owner for Congress. And in Tennessee's 3rd District, Dr. Danielle Mitchell, a family physician, has also been endorsed by Brand New Congress. In the governor's race, former Tennessee governor and moderate Democrat Phil Bredesen is already leading in the polls against rabid Trump Republican Marsha Blackburn in the race for Bob Corker's Senate seat. Unfortunately, Bredesen was not primaried, so progressives will have to hold their noses in the general election. If you're a Tennessee resident and you were registered to vote by July 3rd, you can vote in the primaries. If you miss this cutoff, be sure to get registered before October 9th to be able to vote in the general election. After Tennessee, the next slew of Democratic primaries will be held on August 7th in Kansas, Michigan, Missouri, Ohio, and Washington State.
0: In Kansas's 3rd district, labor lawyer Brett Welder has received endorsements from every progressive organization, including the Congressional Progressive Caucus. He previously worked on Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign and is running on a platform of a $15 minimum wage and Medicare for All. In Kansas's 4th district, civil rights lawyer James Thompson is running for Congress and has received the same progressive endorsements as Welder. If he wins his primary, Thompson will run against a vulnerable incumbent backed by the Koch brothers. If you're a resident of Kansas, you need to be registered by July 17th to vote in the primaries and by October 16th to vote in the general.
7: In Missouri's 1st District, Corey Bush, a former teacher, registered nurse, and pastor, is running for Congress against a longtime Democratic incumbent. She's recently been the victim of vicious, sexist trolling and is not having any of it. She's endorsed by brand-new Congress, Justice Democrats, and others. It's also worth noting that moderate Democrat Senator Claire McCaskill is facing a hell of a fight to retain her seat in the general. Although she is no favorite of progressives, the left can't afford to lose her seat another nose-holding situation for November. If you are a Missouri resident, your voter registration must be complete or postmarked no later than July 11th to vote in the primary and October 10th to vote in the general.
0: Michigan and Washington State are chock-full of progressive candidates endorsed by progressive issues organizations. Instead of listing them all today, I encourage you to go to justicedemocrats.com and brandnewcongress.org and click on the respective candidates tabs to see their endorsements. Make particular note of the governor's race in Michigan, where Justice Democrat Dr. Abdul El-Sayed, a Rhodes Scholar, physician, and former health commissioner of Detroit, is gaining media attention. You must be registered to vote by July 9th, to vote in the Michigan and Washington primaries.
7: And finally, Ohio is having a special election for their 12th district congressional seat that has been empty since January. The winner could hold the seat for just five months, depending on the general, but those months will matter. Danny O'Connor is a Democrat in this race. He doesn't have the far left endorsements, but he does have Democratic Progressives of Ohio, Planned Parenthood, and the regional SEIU. And that's going to have to be good enough because Trump won this district. If you're an Ohio resident of District 12, you must be registered to vote by July 9th to vote in the special election. Early voting starts on July 10th, and absentee ballots must be postmarked by August 6th and received by the 17th.
0: We want to emphasize registration cutoff dates and absentee ballot requests and submission dates are different for each state, sometimes even each county. We highly suggest reviewing your state's information and voter ID laws at rockthevote.org as soon as possible to ensure you will be able to vote in both the primary and general elections. Now, I know we threw a lot of names and dates at you today. Of course, you can go back and listen to them if you need the information again, but we hope you'll take a moment to check the segment notes, which include all of the links to this information, as well as additional resources, and today's midterm minute just as every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestofleft.com so if building the bluest of blue waves is important to you be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about supporting progressive candidates across the country via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too
4: Our next guest has written a new book analyzing what has been going wrong for Democrats in the last decade and detailed a blueprint for how Democrats can start winning again. Here to discuss his new book, How to Democrat in the Age of Trump, Mike Lux. This was a moment for outsiders. And, and, and when we say this, we should also you know, acknowledge that 95 percent, I don't know, maybe it's higher of the people who voted for Donald Trump. um. You know, voted for Mitt Romney and, uh, John McCain or yep. would have, yep. were they of voting age? So that we're really talking about an, a, a, a rather small swing of the electorate to the extent that we're, we're talking about that. So, so let me ask you this. When we look at 2018, when we look at 2020, is the idea to work on that small group of people who swang from Obama to, uh, Trump? Is it to look at those people who normally voted uh, Democratic but just stayed home in 2016? Or is it also, and, and maybe it's a combination of all three, uh, to look at those people who maybe never have voted uh, or, you know, rarely vote and motivate them to come out? What is the focus that Democrats should have and are they mutually exclusive?
8: Well, I argue in the book very strongly that they are not mutually exclusive, that uh, uh, it's all of the above. And it's one more uh, segment as well that you didn't mention, which is the people who, who voted uh, as a protest for third party candidates. The, uh, the 2016 election was the highest third party vote uh, since the days of Ross Perot in, in, in the early and mid 90s uh and and that was a huge factor i mean it it absolutely lost us michigan and wisconsin it probably lost us pennsylvania and and new hampshire and a number of other states as well uh i i mean i'm sorry not new hampshire uh, but uh but a num- but potentially a number of other states so uh so you're so there are four segments of the electorate the three you mentioned and then the the the, the protest voters um, and and what I argue in the book is that rather than saying either or, rather than like having having the choice, well, we we have to do swing voters. No, no, let's do base voters, which has been this argument that that I feel like uh, uh, you know is is a never-ending argument in the Democratic Party. I argue that there uh, there is absolutely a path and a message where we can appeal to. Uh, all of those segments at the same time. And it's by, it's by focusing on, uh, what unites people, uh, which are economic issues, but, but with a frame around race and class. You, I don't, I don't believe you're going to do it just with a Bernie economic message. Uh, I think Bernie's economic message was very powerful, um, and and very important, but I don't think you're going to do it with that alone. I think, one of, the things, one of the ways Democrats screw up is that they, uh, they, avoid, they, try, they try to avoid uh, tough issues. Toughest issue in front of them uh, is this whole race class uh, kind of thing that's going on. Uh, but I believe that, that if, you, if you lead with that, if you open with that, and, and talk about race and class together, and say, look, Trump and the Republicans are trying to divide people on the basis of race they're trying to uh, get people uh, to hate each other on the basis of race because they want to pick your pocket um i think if you make that argument uh, it it actually works and and there's there's research that i cite in my book very powerful research that shows that that kind of argument where you deal with it up front does work and it works for uh uh, for 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 all those segments of the electorate that you were talking about.
4: So when we talk about this message that talks about acknowledges class, uh, and, but also acknowledges um, issues of, of, of race. And let me ask you this. I mean, when you say that the pitch should be something to the effect of race is something that is used to divide us and while uh they're using that to divide us they're they're picking your pocket do you think that goes far enough though for uh folks of color in this country who it's one thing to say that um race is being used as a a device uh to pickpocket but it's also um race has been a uh something that has been oppressive used to oppress a uh, a huge yeah. segment of our population and they, that oppression is real it's not simply a message
8: yeah, uh it, it's a lived
4: experience is that going to be enough to address those concerns
8: well, what what I what I argue in my book, I, I, I think the the straight up answer is no, it's not going to be enough. But I think it's an opening. I think the the, the key question on a uh, on a unified message that appeals to everybody is the opening. I think uh, if if you open talking talking about race and class together, uh, and 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 talking about that message of saying, look, the you know Trump Trump. Uh, and the Republicans are trying to divide us with race. That allows you to get to the next step on the conversation now what i what I say in the book is uh, uh, you know, like all uh, you know uh, politicians in all of history you you talk with different voters in different ways about particular issues, and I do think you need to make a very strong argument with communities of color about the things that matter the most to them. Of course, you need to talk about. Uh, immigration with with uh, immigrant uh, communities. Of course, you need to talk about criminal justice reform with uh, uh, with, with black and Latino uh, communities. Uh, of course, you need to talk about uh, rural economic issues with folks who live in rural areas, um, uh, and you can get into those specifics. But but how you lead is critical. And I would also argue that tying things back to economics is critical uh, that uh, if we if we isolate issues uh, and talk only about a particular immigration issue or only about criminal justice reform but we strip all the economics out of it uh, I think that that is a mistake as well because people do know deep down that that economics is at the heart of things and that the folks with money uh, have a huge stake in keeping the system the way it is you know, uh, on on, on criminal justice, for example, the the for-profit prison industry has driven a lot of the criminal justice policies in this country over the last 30 years. And so we need to go to the heart of that. We need to, uh, you know, look at that issue at its roots. Uh, So I think tying it back to economics, no matter what particular issue you're talking about, is critical.
9: If
0: you would love a way to financially support this show without it costing you anything there's good news you can support the show by bookmarking and using my affiliate link every time you shop with that company online you know basically the one company online lots of evil tendencies owned by the richest dude in the world that one Chances are you shop there at least now and then, maybe even a lot. Perhaps you make a lot of business-related purchases, I know some of you do, or maybe you have a standard selection of home goods you get delivered regularly. In any case, you might have some mixed feelings about it, and you'd be right to, but if you do end up using the site, at least you can help siphon off some of that corporate blood money to help support the production of this show. Your shopping experience will be identical to usual, and it won't cost you a dime more. You can get the affiliate link from the show notes on the device you're using to listen right now, or... You can find it on the sidebar of the homepage at bestofleft.com. You can bookmark the link so you can set it and forget it while continuing to support us into the future. It helps more than you think. I promise it does. And the more who join in, the more it helps. So thanks for taking the time.
3: Let's start with why many socialists are highly skeptical of electoral politics Before we get into your case for why the left should engage with them, why, for good reasons and for bad reasons, are so many socialists so critical?
10: I think there are a number of concerns that socialists have about about electoral politics and electoral strategies, maybe the biggest of them being that electoral politics can elevate a single person, the elected official, above the movement that is pressing for change. So electoral politics tends towards a kind of hero worship or placing of an individual over the movement. That's a concern. Another concern is that electoral politics has a certain rhythm to it where you try to get someone in office. There's a date when that either happens or doesn't happen. And then you go home, your volunteer base goes home, the media attention turns away. And it's seen as sort of the end of public pressure in the moment when the movement heads into the back room. And as socialists, we don't understand politics that way as the sort of thing that only happens in a November every four years. We see it as a continuous process of building power.
3: And whereby everything is either decided in your favor, thus everything turns out awesomely, or is decided against you and thus everything turns out horribly.
11: Yeah, I think that you're getting at a thing which I've really noticed is that people see issue, camp. like I think a lot of socialists see issue campaigns as more pure because there's going to be nobody who sort of compromises the issue, right? Like you have this one vision, and you're going to enact this vision through public agitation, and that's going to be the thing that carries you through. And I think it's really attractive to people, but I think it really underplays the extent to which issue campaigns are necessarily going to be compromised when they get into the realm of public policy, that um, you're not going to win right now through people pouring into the streets, you're going to have coalition partners, you're going to eventually have to talk to the dreaded politicians. You're going to have to, if you actually want to make a change, enact that change through a process that's going to be compromised. And I think with politicians, the compromise is sort of on the front end, right? You see this person with all their warts. And I think people... You know, people become socialists not because they really believe in practical technocratic solutions. They become socialists because they're overwhelmed by really beautiful, pure vision of the future. So I think that that can tend to play into a want for a really pure political action. And I frankly don't think that exists, but I think that's what animates a lot of it.
3: In other words, that there's really not that much politics that isn't in some way also electoral politics.
11: (sighs) Or that there's no politics that, that isn't compromised by the fact of trying to enact something within our fallen world.:
10: <laughs> Right. I think what I think where I really agree with Rene here is that there are very good criticisms of electoral politics on the left, but I think there are also criticisms that blame electoral politics for features of politics in general. For instance, the need to hold together coalitions that are not necessarily ideologically linked beyond the issue they're brought together with, the need to, at some level, compromise with opponents. These are issues that come up whether you're doing electoral politics or a protest campaign around a demand or even sort of organizing oriented campaign to organize tenants or, or employees there's a tendency to see electoral politics as sort of the domain of the deal of negotiation. Politics is always negotiated.
3: Of the dirty deal.
11: (laughs) Uh, You know, and, and I think there's also an aspect where electoral politics in the United States at this moment is always going to be something that requires the raising of a great deal, great number of donations, a great amount of money. And I think people are right to say, look, someone who's able to raise the amount of money that it takes to win elected office is very often going to be captured by moneyed interest. You know, and there are ways uh, that that gets ameliorated through public financing, through small donor bases, through all these kinds of things. But there is, you know, a real structural reason why getting involved in electoral politics is always going to put you in a position where you are needing to sort of raise money A lot of it very quickly, often for people who are interested in things that are not necessarily fully automated gay space communism.
3: I'll add to the list that people are are rightfully skeptical of electoral politics, which is that politicians often sell out their supporters. They, They squeeze them for the legitimacy that their endorsement provides and the labor that their volunteer hours provide and then don't do what they're expected to.
10: I think that's right. I think Brunei and I, as people within the American socialist movement who are more electorally inclined, we spend so much time arguing with very skeptical socialists who are very skeptical of electoral politics that we come very well armed with some counter arguments. But there's a reason that we're in a grassroots socialist organization that works very hard to do many things besides electoral politics, we also don't see electoral as sort of the be-all and end-all political strategy. So there's a sense in which uh, although we may be on the more electorally oriented side of our organization and of the American far left, we're also much more sympathetic to these concerns and criticisms than I think many American liberals who really do see politics as largely a matter of getting the right people in office.
3: Yeah, the debate within DSA is taking place within a framework that is significantly to the left of the the median debate over electoral politics amongst progressives more generally. Mm-hmm. This is a good point to uh, pivot to what the show is about now that we've given a very fair airing to all of the very reasonable critiques of electoral politics from the left. Uh, I want to hear about your case for all of that notwithstanding why electoral politics are still extremely important. One obvious one is in terms of governing, which since we're not Anarchists is what socialists ultimately want to do is be in charge of the government. Um, and that requires electoral politics in a electoral democracy, but then also, also movement building. Explain your argument and also the document within which your argument is contained, which is the DSA electoral strategy.
11: So I think that there are a number of arguments for electoral. Um, as you said, you know, if you actually want to, make changes, you need to convince elected officials. And one good way to do that is to elect some of your own. I think electoral is also good for base building in the sense of it can bring people in a community into the organization. It's a way to very visibly show up for a particular community, all of the things that an uh, issue campaign would do in terms of showing solidarity with particular communities, getting more invested in the neighborhoods we live in, particularly in New York, where most of our members tend to be white and if not um, in middle class by, by dint of cultural capital, moving into neighborhoods which are predominantly people of color or, or working class communities. It's, a, it's, I think, a good way to connect on the ground with you know, voters who are necessarily people within those communities. I think it also, electoral uh, campaigns are very good training in how to run any kind of campaign because they come with built-in deadlines, built-in peaks, valleys, you know, ways to sort of think about how do you structure a campaign? How do you get people to come do the work? How do you empower people to become leaders within the organization? How do you develop a volunteer base? How do you create community within it? all of those things, I think, can be quite useful. And then when, you know, as, as Michael said, we're in DSA because we don't see electoral as the end-all and be-all, and electoral can go hand in hand with other campaigns or issues, right? So housing is a focus of a huge amount of our work in New York, both within electoral and outside of electoral, because it's such a a key issue within the city for working class people. So we can amplify the work of our housing working group and work in tandem with them to work on those issues.
10: Echoing what Renee said on a couple of points, I think that there's a perception that leftists going to people and asking for their vote is a sort of presumptuous ask that people might validly wonder where we came from and who are we to govern. And I think that's a fair question, except that we're engaged and our members are engaged in struggles within these communities around a whole range of issues. And we see electoral as one tactic within sort of a broader scale strategy of fighting for the city that we all live in and share the fate of. I think a great example of that is the Jabari-Brisport campaign that DSA helped support within Brooklyn in 2017, which was a city council campaign that emerged very directly out of a big housing fight. The mayor wanted to sell off some public land to private developers to build condos on, and DSA was very, very deeply involved in the fight against that. Out of that fight, there emerged this fantastic black candidate from the community, Jabari Brisport, who wanted to run a campaign sort of based up around that issue against the incumbent city councillor. And that's a I feel a great example of how issue campaigns and electoral can be just two sides of the same coin, can flow directly into each other. The other thing I want to really echo, but be meaner about maybe what Renee said. <laughs> I think that a wonderful thing about doing electoral work on the left is that it really forces you to face up to your power and whether you have the power to win. I think it's very easy for an issue campaign or many other campaigns that the left engages in to sort of wander through a series of protests and pressures and actions and sort of peter out eventually without a really clear decision as to were we strong enough to win this? Was this a good strategy? Yes or no? I think that in sharp contrast, for instance, when you have a union organizing campaign, you organize and organize and then you either win the vote and then win the contract or you don't. You're really confronted with the limits of your power. And I think that really pushes people to extend those limits and builds capacity. And I think electoral is the same way. There's a way that having a really clear timeline and a really clear sense of what it means to win and what it means to lose really pushes people and builds capacity and builds organizers and those organizers do take that skill and that perspective and that hunger for a win into all kinds of other activism that the organization does.
0: In these dark times, there aren't a whole lot of unambiguously positive things you can do to make the world a measurably better place, but there is at least one piece of low-hanging fruit that I always recommend. To help with our shift to a renewable energy future, we can sign up for renewable energy in our homes and offices. Depending on where you live, renewable energy may even be cheaper than the old fossil fuel sources, and of course, you only have to sign up once and reap the rewards effortlessly indefinitely. If you live or work in New York, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Maryland, D.C., Delaware, Illinois, Massachusetts, or Ohio, you can sign up with the clean energy company I've partnered with, Clean Choice Energy. To sign up and support the show by letting them know that I sent you, just visit cleanchoiceenergy.com slash best. You can easily find that link right in the show notes on the device you're using to listen right now, or you'll find it on the sidebar of the homepage at bestoftheleft.com. It'll make you feel good every time you see your electricity bill, so don't wait. There's nothing stopping you from signing up to use renewable energy right now, and it's easier than you think. Again, visit cleanchoiceenergy.com slash best to get started. When it comes to energy, now you have a choice.
12: As we saw in 2016, Voting Matters and my guest Maurice Mitchell, the new national director of the Working Families Party, wants to fire up the base in unprecedented ways for what he calls these unprecedented times. Jean-Bertrand Aristide, the president of Haiti, once said that the elections just take the temperature of the democracy. They're not the democracy. If you right. were to take the temperature of the Working Families Party now, like yeah. where you're at, mm-hmm. um, and we're speaking at the beginning of the summer season mm-hmm. of 2018 and the run-up to the um, midterms, um, where would you say we're at? What are you excited about and yeah. um, where are you pushing?
13: What I'm excited about is I feel like we're in unprecedented times. And we're in a time of a volatile time, right? And during times of volatility, there's, there's just great opportunity, right? If we seize it. So I think it's a question. If we seize this opportunity where, you know, we have all of these new movements that have, that have come about in the past few years. Um, the movement of, of dreamers and immigrants, the movement, uh, the movement for black lives, um, the never again movement around gun violence, the women's march, right? So, an unprecedented sort of culture shift in how people relate to their democracy. That is that is also an indicator of where our democracy is at. And at the same time, especially with millennials and young people, lower and lower party affiliation. Because people are ha- finding a hard time sort of associating with these two very corporate entities. One is a center-right party. The other is a far-right, pro- proto-fascist party, right? And people have a desire, have a hunger for something different. They want an electoral expression of these movements. And they've been finding some good people to vote for in the primaries. Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, people like Stacey Abrams, you know. Um, the, the
12: Democratic gubernatorial candidate in Georgia.
13: Yes. And we're super excited about her race. Um, you know, we've endorsed her. And, you know, we have people on the ground um, in Georgia. And another aside around that is the collaboration that's happening around amazing visionary leaders like Stacey. So it's not just us in Georgia, it's a whole coalition of forces. Um, and so I, if I were to take the temperature, I think that this is a, a moment of great opportunity um, for people of goodwill, for people on the left, and for the party um, to be a political home, for for people who have those values that, you know, where you have to kind of like hold your nose and make that strategic vote, but you feel funny about it. We want to create a political home where you can feel really proud about it. And I think this is a great time where, where participation <coughs> is growing, but party affiliation is is declining. In that, in that sweet spot, that's where the Working Families Party, I think, could really be ascended.
12: Shout out to people who haven't heard of Stacey Abrams yet. And mm-hmm. um, why is it so significant, what just happened in Georgia?
13: So the Stacey Abrams race is so significant because Stacey Abrams is a true progressive, a true fighter. She's been committed since a young person around these values. This isn't something she just stepped into. Um, And she built a grassroots movement led by black women. So I I always say one of my political, one of my political philosophies is trust black women. Stacey Abrams is a leader, a principled leader um, that created this amazing electoral, grassroots electoral uh, movement around her race. She would be the first black woman governor in the history of the United States when she wins. Um, and so she ran a insurgent uh, primary uh, and won, won and blew it out the water, I think you know, past 70 percent of the vote. And to me, this is an example of our values. This is an example of, of um, aligning with out, outsiders that, you know, the the mainstream would never consider, um, you know, right now there's this fight that's taking place where a lot of these outside candidates, many of them women, are being challenged by the DCCC and others to get out of the races because, um, you know, the, the Democrats are so concerned with fl- uh, flipping Congress that they rather have, you know, middle of the road. They're still committed to these like, you know, white guy veterans and, you know, and uh, small business people, that sort of strategy. The Democratic
12: Congressional Campaign Committee.
13: Yeah. And um, we believe that when you find uh, somebody who's authentic, who's rooted in their community, who has real values, you'll develop a movement around them that'll take them over the edge. And we saw that with Stacey Abrams, and I couldn't be more excited.
12: Now, as much as you make yourself clear, you've also been getting some help from the establishment mm-hmm. in distinguishing you from others. That's right. When the Working Families Party went out on a limb and endorsed an insurgent contest, a, a competitor mm-hmm. in the um, gubernatorial race in New York, yeah. Cynthia Nixon, the yeah. actress running against Andrew Cuomo,
13: mm-hmm.
12: um, Cuomo lashed out That's in right. a way that spoke volumes, it seems to me, about the fear of the establishment. Um, tell me and our audience what happened. There were threats. Sure. Sure. And, and what you made of that.
13: Yeah. I mean, I think for all the insiders have known for years, um, that Cuomo sort of r- runs the, the Democratic Party and the politics of New York like a, like a boss, right? Like it's like a Tammany Hall type of, uh, character. But this was sort of like an inside story. And, um, we dared to disobey him, um, by primary him. Um, and, you know, the tension is like, you know, there's so many so many layers to the story. But I think the the important thing for your viewers to understand is that um, Cuomo took that that insult of us being an independent party and choosing uh, to endorse somebody else. Um, he's now taking it. He's taken it upon himself to attempt to destroy the party um, and attempt to isolate us. What form is that taken? He's bullied many of our partners in labor. Uh, who we've worked closely with for decades, um, to pull their support from us. He's bullied elected officials, um, to pull their support from us and not to align with us. Um, and he's, trust me, every day, I'm sure there's a war room where there's some space where that says WFP where he's coming up with all types of really underhanded strategies to, Either dilute our political power, to defame us, to discredit us, um, because he wants to make an example out of us—that you do not disobey him in, now, in New York State.
12: There are people watching that are of the belief that it is a distraction mm-hmm. in a tight-fought race to be throwing up a, a, a primary challenge. Ah. Um, and at the same time, Cynthia Nixon's candidacy does seem to have had a positive impact on Cuomo. Sure, is that your goal? Uh, we
13: have a we have a number of goals. We're really excited about Cynthia. But one of the, one of the things that happens when you support a visionary non-corporate candidate is that they say the things that we actually believe. The things often you'll never hear from a traditional candidate. So, you know, I was in Harlem and Cynthia gave a, gave a speech and talked about the fact that gentrification was a colonial a colonial expression that we need to really challenge, right? That's not anything you're going to hear from a corporate Democrat. And Cynthia came out um, for Medicaid for all, um, for um, legalizing marijuana. And then as as soon as she moves in a certain direction, Cuomo desperately yeah. moves further left. So we're moving the center of politics in New York State left as Cynthia runs.
12: And the fears that people have that you'll be de- de- detracting from the chances of the Democrat winning?
13: Listen, I, I think those fears are so unfounded. And if we rely on fear, that's one of the reasons why we're at where we are in our country.
12: So right? those fears get diminished when you share them. Um, mm-hmm. and I happen to know you just came back from Barcelona. That's right. Um, where a lot of. People have be fi- are fighting similar fights yeah. um, across Europe, in fact. Mm-hmm. To what extent are you working with allies and colleagues in other countries and to what end?
13: Yeah, so that's another thing that really excites me. I have a number of mandates um, as I take on this mantle. One of them is international internationalizing our perspective and also building meaningful relationships with left parties around the world that are interested in these fights because everything that we're dealing with In the United States, the rise of right-wing populism, the rise of, um, white supremacists, um, sort of gentrification on the municipal level, all those things, people are dealing with that in, in countries around the world. And so it just makes sense to be in conversation with our partners in other places as they develop solutions, and then we could exchange ideas, we, we could exchange different practices, um, and we could build a coalition the same way that the right wing internationally is building deep. If people remember Steve Bannon, you know, he went on tour in Europe. And so in the same way that the, the, the far right is building this international coalition, we need to be strategic and internationalize our perspective, internationalize our relationships and internationalize our, our politics. And so the Working Families Party is in the next few years going to engage with, you know, folks in the UK that are doing interesting things, folks in Spain. Uh, there's parties around the world. There's parties in Latin America and there's movements in Africa. Uh, I was just in. South Africa for a month, uh, that are really exciting, doing really groundbreaking things and working on these issues, you know, working on gentrification, working on, on land rights, working on what's the commons, like what, what exactly is, what exactly is a right or isn't a right, right? And so these are, these are not just parochial American issues. And if we see them as, as those, then it kind of limits our perspective and, and the, the power that we could have if we align internationally.
9: Uh, There were several big and important wins for progressives on Tuesday as seven states held primaries for the crucial for the crucial 2018 midterms. But the biggest news by far seems to be the defeat of longtime Wall Street funded establishment Democratic Congressman Joe Crowley by upstart first timer Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, a progressive 28 year old. Democratic socialist and Bernie Sanders acolyte, which the media and political world uh, seem to be characterizing uh, today, as you pointed out, at The Nation as a political earthquake. Why is this such shattering news, John Nichols? It's it's just one race in liberal New York City, after all, uh, and one in which just, uh, oh, I don't know, 25,000 or so Democratic uh, voters turned out on Tuesday.
2: Well, it goes to the conversation we were just having. Right. Because there has been a sense that Democrats, even reasonably liberal Democrats, and it's important to understand that that Crowley was a reasonably liberal Democrat, um, don't seem to be sufficient to the moment, Mm -hmm. right? There's an awful lot of grassroots Democrats who are deeply concerned about whether their party is ready to do two things. Number one, fight in the moment we live in. Mm -hmm uh the struggles that need to be done and, and notably um the challenger in this race, uh Ocasio Cortez, uh went down to the Texas border as part of her campaign uh, to highlight the immigrant rights issues that were in play in recent weeks. Um you know she really understood the the significance of wrapping in all the battles of the moment. Right and, and being on top of them, ahead of them, aggressive. So that's number one. Right, fight the battles of the moment with a with an energy and a focus that again a lot of Democrats seem to lack. But secondly, fight the battles of the future. Get ready for where the party has to go. And it's it's very notable. This is I think relatively well covered, but but I would still argue not sufficiently. This. Challenge was mounted by a member of Democratic Socialists of America who identified as a democratic socialist mm-hmm. who, in interviews talked about you know why she was uh, a democratic socialist and also a, a very you know kind of boldly progressive individual whose campaign in many ways extended from not just the Bernie Sanders campaign for which she had been an organizer mm-hmm. but from the many movements that are in play now on economic and social and racial justice and criminal justice reform issues, just a host of of, uh, consequential uh, movement struggles. And why I say that's the politics of the future, you know, we've talked about this before, Brad. We are in the midst of radical changes that have nothing to do or very little to do with Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. We're in the midst of a globalization revolution, a digital revolution, an automation revolution. Our society is changing in fundamental ways, and we need a lot more ideas, and we need bolder ideas to be able to handle these changes. And I think that a a chunk of young voters, especially in that Bronx and Queens district, Mm -hmm. recognize that need
9: you argue at the uh, nation today that most democratic leaders have been very slow to recognize the intense yearning for economic and social change amongst their uh, amongst their own base and among yeah. the million of vote, millions of voters who could be rallied to the party line if it offered a dramatically bolder vision. And I agree with you, but that was also the argument that Bernie Sanders made before not being able to rally enough voters to his bolder vision to win the Democratic presidential nomination in 2016. And a number of his endorsed candidates have uh, failed to win nominations uh, elsewhere in the country so far this cycle. So what makes you so sure, John Nichols, that there are those millions of voters out there who, uh, you know, ad- enough to actually flip red seats to blue this November and uh, a, a red White House to a blue White House uh, in 2020?
2: Well, let's uh, note that, that when we were talking about this just a moment ago, I suggested there were two factors, right? Mm-hmm. One was you know, that energy from the Sanders campaign and, and you know all of, all of the kind of Sanders-focused analysis, which we hear a lot of. But secondly is also that involvement with movements. You know, that, that, you know, reaching beyond even where Sanders went uh, into immigrant rights, racial justice, uh, criminal justice reform, uh, full-on for single-payer, full-on for, um, as, you know, in this case, uh, Ocasio-Cortez talking about uh, housing as a right, Uh um, a whole host of fundamental economic and social issues. I, I think there's a space there, but you can't go cautious on it and it's not to say that some of the candidates who were defeated were cautious not necessarily the case but there are ways to hit your mark and what was interesting yesterday is that you saw a number of instances where candidates hit the mark uh it isn't just this race in New York City you also had in Maryland mm-hmm. Ben jealous yeah. who was a key sanders backer from 2016, former head of the NAACP, a remarkable individual in his own right on a host of issues and great resume, great history, running for governor uh, in a crowded primary. Pretty much the whole of the Maryland establishment was lined up against him, but he put together a coalition of unions, activists, young people, uh, people of color in uh, especially the Baltimore area. And he prevailed. He didn't just win by a little. He got 40% in a nine-way primary. Right. 11 points ahead of his next closest competitor. That's a big win. And, and I cannot begin to emphasize, I followed this race closely. What Jealous did was not merely say, you know, yeah, I want to shake things up or I want to be a progressive or blah, blah, blah. Much like uh, Ocasio Cortez, he um, had an incredibly detailed agenda. I mean, this is a a visionary campaign that talked about the future in all sorts of ways. And if I give you one other example, out in Colorado, Emily Sirota won a state legislative fight. Mm -hmm. And it was a fight between what a lot of our media might identify as two liberals. Her opponent was a relatively uh, progressive woman as well. And yet there there was a real divide there. As regards intensity and passion, and Emily Sirota took very, very bold stands as regards labor rights. She was even attacked uh, in, in some instances for being so bold in having done so. But she won that primary, and she will she'll end up in the legislature. Um, and Ocasio Cortez in New York will end up in Congress because these are you know pretty. Democratic district. Yeah. Jealous has a tougher fight.
7: Yep.
2: But, boy, if you watched him last night as he declared victory, he was going right to the heart of the matter of, you know, an expansive turnout building, generationally focused Campaign.
9: I have been uh, kind of brutal over the last several weeks uh, against those progressives, not all progressives, but those progressives who, uh, you know, continue to say, oh, there's no difference in the party. Why bother in the two parties? Why bother voting uh, if they can't tell that? Yes, there is a difference and that even a terrible Democrat at you know in the middle of this national emergency even a terrible democrat turns out to be better than a republican so mm-hmm. i you know i've been uh, telling those progressives we're in a national emergency you need to vote for the guy or the girl with d by their name period this november until we get out of this mess even if you don't like that candidate but uh, the same thing is true for the uh the establishment the the leadership will the establishment democrats Join in and really get behind these progressive candidates like Ben Jealous in Maryland and uh, Ocasio Cortez in New York and elsewhere across the country when they win their uh, their primaries.
2: They better. If they don't, they will they will literally wreck the party. Right? You can't yeah. play those games anymore. People are very you know. Again, this is a media shift as much as a political shift. People, we've democratized information about how parties operate. And people at the grassroots find out whether the party is, you know, withdrawing support or limiting support or not doing enough. Mm-hmm. So you can't play the old games anymore. That's that's the number one lesson. Uh, the number two lesson is that you've got a, you know, there's a push and a here, right? Uh, many Democratic leaders uh, are actually quite progressive folks. But they've been cautious because they think they have to be cautious, right? They They imagined a certain kind of politics. They got into a habit of compromise. Wins like this, you know, advancements like what we saw yesterday in a number of races suggest that there's another way. And it's very important that that suggestion, you know, come through, that it be taken seriously. Mm-hmm. Uh, I tend to think you are correct in, you know, yeah, you, look, this is, this, you really want to see a shift in Congress, because you want to have a checking and a balancing of Donald Trump, that the Republicans simply won't do. And one of the ways to think about this thing is take a look at the Congressional Progressive Caucus, a caucus that generally has members who are very progressive on a host of economic, social, foreign policy issues. Uh, not all of them the same, but many of them mm-hmm. really in a in a good place. I've just been running analysis recently on a number of Congressional Progressive Caucus members who would be committee chairs or key subcommittee chairs if Democrats were to take the House. And that's a way to think about it. Even yep. if you're a local Democrat, may not be the greatest thing in the world, that you are empowering some very progressive people to run committees and to actually decide on how legislation advances, mm-hmm. how issues are dealt with.
9: Yeah, and how, by the way, uh, you know, how Supreme Court justices are replaced when it comes the to Senate. the U.S. That Senate. Yeah, uh, is, yeah. And so that's why, you know, even if you have to hold your nose and vote for Joe Manchin in West Virginia for Senate, if that means that the Democrats uh, take back the majority and can block some of this ongoing nightmare, I would argue that's a, a, a good thing you <sighs> John in 30 seconds I got uh real Donald Trump today saying on Twitter the Democrats are in turmoil and of course the right is pointing to these uh progressive victories on Tuesday as signs that the party is uh uh you know they they take the word socialist and turn that into marxist uh how do you narr how do you uh uh, uh respond to that narrative coming from the right how do you counter this you know this corporate media narrative that we're going to hear about the Democratic Party moving far, far to the left, as Republicans have been pretending for so many years.
2: You know, they only scream about it when they're scared. Yep. These people, look, our Republican friends are not all insincere, but an awful lot of them are. And the fact of the matter is, they know as well as you and anybody else does that when Bernie Sanders ran in 2016, a big part of what got people excited about him wasn't necessarily. It wasn't necessarily that they were all socialists or democratic socialists. That's not the point. But the fact that he was willing to identify uh, in a way that was different, mm-hmm. that was bold, that was potentially even some people saw as a little threatening, that was what people thought. That's what people wanted. They want something more. And again, this isn't just a simplistic thing of saying, "Yeah, everybody wants socialism." That's not the point. Or everybody wants. You know, some sort of you know, incredibly bold progressivism. But what is clear is voters are sick and tired of status quo politicians who won't take a stand and won't be bold on anything. And Republicans would like Democrats to stay that way. And so with all due respect, if our Republican friends tell you, oh, the Democratic Party's moving too far to the left, it's probably a good signal that the Democratic Party's doing the right thing.
0: We've just heard clips today, starting with Sunday Civics reminding us of the huge number of elections being run this year and all of the opportunities we have for change. Then we heard a collection of voices of young progressives that was put together by The Laura Flanders Show. Ring of Fire Radio discussed one argument for a winning strategy that Democrats should be focusing on to permanently bridge the divide between economics and intersectional identity politics. The Dig from Jacobin Magazine spoke with activists from the Democratic Socialists of America who explained why some on the left are skeptical of electoral politics but why they need to come around to it and get involved. The Laura Flanders Show then spoke with a member of the Working Families Party on their efforts to push progressive values through the electoral system. And finally, we just heard the Bradcast talking with John Nichols of The Nation about some of the political earthquakes rocking the primary election so far, as well as an explanation for how electing terrible corporate Democrats can still manage to help empower truly progressive members of Congress if they're put in the majority. For further exploration of this subject, honestly, you could probably tune into just about any political talk show, uh, as I assume most of them will be talking about little more than the elections from here on out. Uh, As always, you can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, again, we would normally hear from you, uh, and I did get voicemails this time, but they'd send me down a whole other path that I don't have time for today, so we're going to save them for next time. Uh, Now, today, I just wanted to touch on a bit of the philosophy of voting and elections that uh, I just haven't had a chance to talk about uh, since the last time we had an election. just want to set some things straight and, and add on to a little bit of what I said in the comments of the last episode. So, as I mentioned at the top of the show, today's episode spans many perspectives, hoping to sort of address the concerns of many along the spectrum from moderate Democrat to the far, like, anarchist leftists. And so, first of all, for the moderates, we argue in today's show that we need to be more progressive. Being moderate, even if your desired outcome is a moderate set of policies, electing moderates doesn't actually help get you to where you want to go very much. And what I said during the 2016 election, and I know others said it too, I can't even remember if it was an original thought I had or or something I got from someone else, but that when you elect moderates, you know, it's not all bad by any stretch. No, uh, I don't. I don't think anyone should say that. Uh, as we saw under the Obama administration, who I think was clearly a moderate, it gives breathing room for radical reform movements, social movements like Black Lives Matter, economic movements like the fight for fifteen and the Bernie Sanders campaign. So, if you think that nothing radical can ever happen under a, a moderate political regime. Just look at those movements that sprang up during the Obama years. And so, like, as I heard, uh, Michael Brooks, he's one of the co-hosts on The Majority Report, just happened to hear him say this recently, and I liked it. He's like, look, I wish Hillary had won so that neoliberal Democrats were the worst problem we were fighting against. He would still be fighting against the same stuff, but you wouldn't have all the extra stuff to deal with on top of it. So the way I see it, moderate politicians leave breathing room for these types of movements But progressive candidates blow on these embers and translate them into real power and reform measures. So moderates simply can't get anything done. They don't get the energy. They don't get the fire and the passion underneath them. And so their reform efforts sort of fizzle because the Republicans are always going to be there to try to block them. And they don't have like a massive people-powered movement behind moderate policies So they get stonewalled. Okay, now going to the other side, the anarchist wing, uh, or anyone who is dubious about voting. I mentioned a post that went viral on Facebook in the last episode, and the writer spoke. he, He talked about how he came from a tradition of the sort of anarchist mentality that more or less opposed voting. But what I forgot to mention—it's <laughs> sort of a big oversight—I I jumped into my opinions on that. But what I forgot to mention is that he was writing to make the case in the other direction. He was arguing that we need to make voting cool again. That that mentality he came from was wrong, and that we need to change our thinking. And and people in that line of thinking need to come around. So you know, I I think that. Uh, Doubting the value of voting, especially on the left, goes back a long ways. This is not new, but I read an interesting article a year and a half or two years ago that uh, was basically arguing that a really major split happened due to the Vietnam War. So, you know, you might have had your doubts about voting before, but the Vietnam War just, like, broke (laughs) the left. And it caused so many people to become so viscerally disgusted with traditional politics that they simply checked out altogether. They shifted their focus away from electoral politics, away from economic issues, and focused entirely on social issues. So there was the fight against the war, there's the fight against sexism, fight against racism, and and that's where their energy went. And, and there was a lot of anti politics, like not anti-right-wing politics, uh, but just anti-politics going on at the time. And so, you know, arguably, they did a good job of fighting those social battles during those following decades, and we did have a lot of progress, certainly a lot of setbacks and, and uh, missteps, but progress in, in many ways has been made in the realms of sexism and racism and so forth. But most of those successes have really been seen only just in the standards of social norms or victories won in the courts. Very few successes on social issues have been put into law. And the problem with that is that it makes it a lot easier to reverse, partially on on the social level and especially with just a few well-placed conservative judges, then all of a sudden you can undo all of those successes we thought that we had confirmed. Then on the other side, we've had essentially no economic victories in the last several decades. You know, We've just watched as the party that once stood with working people just got right in bed with the banks and wholeheartedly adopted a neoliberal capitalist framework and sort of left The working man holding the bag. So continuing with this broad perspective, you are like we kind of went from the progressive political machine that powered everything from the FDR New Deal to the post-war era in Germany, in West Germany, where – they put in like all of the rules that make Germany an enormous economic powerhouse right now, and give workers power in corporations because half of the board of directors of corporations, like large ones, have to be represented by workers. That was all put in by American New Dealers who went to Germany to help rebuild after the war. So just a perspective of where progressive policies get a country. If you get give it enough time. So you got the FDR New Deal era all the way through the JFK LBJ war on poverty era and then the left breaks and stops focusing on electoral politics and we fall into, you know, a period of justifiable disillusionment. But, you know, one of the primary ways that people protested was to stop voting either strategically or just to stop voting at all. And that's not protest. That's unilateral disarmament. And this is where that has gotten us. One right-wing party and one neo-fascist party. So I agree with the writer on that Facebook post. We need to do everything we can Not just to vote and convince people to vote, but to convince everyone that voting is cool again. And that's why I wanted to highlight organizations like the Democratic Socialists of America and the Working Families Party. These are both organizations that can bridge that gap between those on the left who are disillusioned and the electoral politics that is such a turnoff for so many of them. So if that's what you need to get excited about voting again, by all means Go check out those organizations. And finally, just remember that there is no equal and opposite group on the far right arguing that they should protest the system by telling wealthy white people to not vote or to vote third party. So do what you have to do and say what you have to say and spread the word to all your friends that voting is finally cool again. As always, I would love to hear your comments on this or anything else. The number to dial 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. But before I go, just one quick note that today's episode was actually sponsored by the Dollar Shave Club. They deliver everything you need to look, feel, and smell your best, including shampoo, conditioner, body wash, toothpaste, hair gel, even a wipe that'll leave your tush feeling tingly clean. It really is so much that it'll be hard to know where to start. So, they've made it easy for you with this great way. You can try a bunch of Dollar Shave Club's products for just five bucks. You can get their daily essential starter set. It comes with body cleanser, one wipe Charlie's, their amazing butt wipes, their world famous shave butter, and their best razor, the Six Blade Executive. Keep the blades coming for a few more bucks a month and add in shampoo, toothpaste, or anything else you need. Check it all out at dollarshaveclub.com slash best. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash best. Now... Thanks to everyone for listening, thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., My name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com.